The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. Welcome to Berean Bible Church. Uh, We're going to talk this morning about walking in the light. Now, as we are beginning, just the very beginnings of our study in 1 John, we have to keep in mind who he is writing to. So let me ask you, who is this letter written to? Huh? Who is it written to? All the churches. All right, thank you. He's writing to believers. This is most likely a circular letter that was intended to be passed around. There's no specific you know, audience mentioned in the book, but it was passed around to various churches they believe in Asia Minor. And the one thing we know for certain about the readers is that they were Christians. All right? We see that in 1 John 5, 13. He says, For these things I did write to you who are believing. All right? So he's writing to Christians. He's writing to those who believe. Now, this is different than the fourth gospel. Same author, but in the fourth gospel, the reason he wrote was to bring people to faith in Christ. That's the stated purpose of the gospel. Well, what John is doing, he's trying to instruct those who have already believed in how to have fellowship with the living God. Now, I see the purpose of this letter as fellowship. We saw this last time in 1 John 1, 1 through 3, I mean 1 verse 3, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you may have fellowship with us. That's why he's writing. He wants them to be able to fellowship with him and with his son. Don't pay no attention to that guy. He's not even there, okay? <laughs> So, so that's what this epistle is about. It's about having fellowship. Now, he says, so that, so that you may have fellowship. That's a hina purpose clause in the Greek, and it's a, with a present active subjunctive. The main theme of the epistle is fellowship. That's what John's writing about. Now, I'm sure that you can understand that not everyone agrees with me on that. Does that shock you? No matter what I say, not everyone agrees with me on that, Okay. Many don't see the theme here in this book as fellowship. One commentator writes this, Now, if ever you're looking for the certainty of what the true gospel is, well, 1 John is a good book to go to. What? No, it's not. That's not what he's writing about. You go to the gospel of John for that. That's where he'll lay out the gospel. John MacArthur writes this, In 1 John, John provides tests by which the church can determine who is a true believer. There is objective test of doctrine, and there is the subjective test of morality and love. Does does God write us a book so we can run around testing everybody else in the church to see, are you really true? Now, I, I would not have a problem with the doctrinal test. I mean, you have to believe certain things to be a Christian. But when he says there's a subjective test of morality... So you look at somebody and you say, see them do something you think is not right, and you say, oh, they can't be a Christian. People, we're not, we're not called to run around being fruit inspectors for everybody, okay? And determine who's in and who's out. The Pharisees did that. We don't need to be doing it, all right? If someone understands and believes the gospel, we need to take them at their word. And if they're not living right, then we need to encourage them to righteous living. Do you want people running around testing you i saw gary do this this week and he's not a christian that's one of the things on the list and he's off now all right so i think he's way off here first john is written to believers the book is about having fellowship with yahweh it's not about determining who's a true believer believers this book is about how we listen we christians right here right now can have fellowship with the god of all creation Psalm 50 says this, The Mighty One, God, Yahweh, speaks and summons the earth from rising of the sun to the setting. Now, Mighty One, God, Yahweh here is El Elohim Yahweh in the Hebrew, 
And it's best translated, listen, Yahweh is the greatest God. And this is the God, people, that we can have fellowship with. Just like Enoch did. Remember Enoch? Enoch walked with God, and he was not. For God took him. He walked with God. That's a very significant phrase. It's also used of Noah in chapter 6. But this phrase only occurs three times in the Tanakh. And none in the New Testament. When God walks with men, that's a rare thing. The first occasion of this was in Genesis 3, where it says, Yahweh God walking in the garden. He walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. He walked with God in the garden temple with having intimate fellowship with God, a divine encounter. Enoch had a holy intimacy with the Creator that separated him from the world around him. And it says he was not for God took him. Now the language of being taken here by God appears in the description of Elijah's departure from the earth in a fiery chariot in 2 Kings 2. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, also asserts that Enoch didn't die. It says, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he wouldn't see death. Hebrews 11.15 So Enoch is walking in fellowship with God. His life's pleasing God. God had so much enjoyment from Enoch and their fellowship that he took him. Where did he take him? Huh? Where did he take him? I mean... Let's say you're having fellowship with somebody and you're enjoying their fellowship and they're in a different realm, a different place, and you want more intimate fellowship, so what do you do? You get them and you take them where? To some other city where you're not? You bring them to be with yourself, right? God has intimate fellowship with them. He says, come be with me. I just don't know why you would take them anywhere else. It doesn't make any sense, you know. Fellowship with God is the highest and the greatest human experience. Adam knew it in the garden, but he lost it. Abraham, Jacob, Moses, David, they fellowship with God. Elijah fellowship with God, and he also was caught up to the presence of God. Now, if John's readers are to have fellowship with the Father and with the Son, as verse 3 says, they need to understand what makes that possible. Is it, does every Christian have that? See, some antinomian Gnostics believe that knowledge was superior to virtue and morality, and John's revelation, his teaching here, is to counter that error. In the prologue, the first four verses of this book, John claimed that he was numbered among the eyewitnesses of the Word of Life. Now, in verse 5, he defines the content of his message. He said, this is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. So this verse provides a basis for what follows in verses 6 to 10, and really for the rest of the letter. In Greek, this verse begins with a conjunction chi. And this conjunction forms a link between the prologue, verses 1 through 4, and the present section, which runs from 5 to 2, 2. So this is the message. John is affirming his personal presence during Yeshua's teaching. He says, this is a message that we heard from Him. We were there. We listened to Him. We were there when He taught. We heard it. He is passing on what Yeshua taught them. This is not His revelation. This is not His opinion. He is passing on what He has been taught. The pronoun here, we, refers to John and the other eyewitnesses of Christ's teaching. The you is the believers in Asia. John is saying, the message we're proclaiming to you, Christ gave us, We're only relaying what He told us. In John chapter 8, Yeshua said this, I speak of what I have seen with the Father. So there's a chain of communication here. God the Father communicates to Christ what He wants men to know. Christ comes and instructs the disciples. The disciples are now sharing with the believers in Asia Minor the message that Christ gave them. And the message is this, God is light. That's the message. Here's the message we're claiming to you. God is light. You know, maybe he made a mistake here. Isn't it supposed to be God is love? I mean, that's what everybody knows, right? God is love. What's this light thing? What's a God? In, well, in many ways, the statement that God is light, that's really the thesis of this epistle. 
It includes a definition of God's character as well as implications for the life of Christian discipleship. What does he mean by saying God is light? Well, Lazarus would obviously be drawing his imagery here from the Tanakh. He was a priest. He knew well the Tanakh. In the Tanakh, we see that the reference to God as light is used, and it has several different meanings. You know, whenever you're reading someone and they say, well, light means this, nah, it's got a lot of different meanings, okay? We have to determine from the context how it's being used. Uh, light attends to, it characterizes God's self-manifestation. Remember in Exodus chapter 3, God showed up in a burning bush and there was a light. God to the children, He says, He told the children of Israel, my presence will go with you. There was a pillar of fire. All right, God you know, displays Himself in glorious light. The psalmist pictures God clothed in garments of light. He says, Bless Yahweh, O my soul, Yahweh my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.16, Who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light. This unapproachable light is an appropriate symbol for the one who is pure, righteous, and holy. See, light also speaks of God's revelation through the spoken and written Word. That Word offers moral guidance and direction for living in accordance with God's will. He says, your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Just like the light shows where you're supposed to go, if you want to know how you're supposed to walk spiritually, it's, you find out from the Word of God, nowhere else. That's the only way human beings are going to get God's Word on how they're to live and how they're to walk. The unfolding of your words gives light. We've got to get in the Word to see the light. Psalm 36.9 says, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. That's the only way we're going to, eyes are going to be seeing is if we're looking in the Word of God. It, light, light is also a symbol for truth. We see that in Psalm 43.3. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Light is also used to symbolize God's salvation. The psalmist celebrates Yahweh in Psalm 27.1. He says, Yahweh is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Yahweh is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Light is a favorite image of the prophet Isaiah. He depicts God's saving activity in the picture of light. Isaiah 61 says, Rise, shine, for the light has come, and the glory of Yahweh has risen upon you. The light figure emphasizes many qualities in God. We see this all through, like I said, the Tanakh. Now, it talks about His splendor and glory, and we understand that with light, right? It talks about His truthfulness. Light is a manifestation. Light is an image of that. His self-communicative nature. His purity. But here, I think John's main idea with light is that God is holy. And as the following context and the introduction of the light-darkness Moffat here make clear, this involves the moral realm and thus constitutes the description of God's character as pure and completely sinless. So I see the message here, when he says God is light, he's saying God is holy. Now the Gnostics, they asserted that light referred to knowledge. But John asserts that it refers to ethical purity. Today, just as it was back then, the subject of God's holiness is not a real popular subject. Like I said, if you want to draw crowds, you talk about God is love, because everybody knows that verse, everybody knows the Bible says God is love. Everybody wants to hear that, but they don't necessarily want to hear about His holiness. Because if God is holy, that means He judges sin, and they don't want to hear that. Now just to do a little self-check here, see where you're at in understanding the holiness of God. Ask yourself this question, or have you ever asked this question? Why is God allowing me to go through this? I don't deserve this. You ever thought that? You ever, I mean, hopefully never verbalize it, but you ever felt that? Why me, God? Why would I have to go through this? See, this attitude comes from a lack of understanding of the holiness of God. 
Because if we understand that God is absolute holiness, we would see that we deserve nothing but wrath. And we won't challenge and criticize God when our life doesn't go as we think it should. It's not, God, why'd you let me go through this? It's, God, why do you let me breathe for a second? Why do you let me enjoy any happiness? Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And if we understand He's absolute holy, we don't, He doesn't owe us anything but wrath. In Him, He says, there's no darkness at all. This is a strong double negative in the Greek. The author states the same thing, God's light, and then he states it negatively. It's an assertion of the unchanging, holy character of God. There's no darkness in Him. Now, the symbols of light and darkness are themes, again, that are rooted in the Tanakh and are drawn upon and applied in the New Testament. Light is a significant metaphor in Scripture, and the word light occurs on the very first and the very last pages of Scripture and more than 250 times in between. So let's look just for a moment at a few places about light in the Scripture. Let's go back to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. So here we have darkness. And then, and God said, let there be light. And there was light, and God saw the light was good. And God separated light from darkness and called the light day and the darkness He called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Alright? Now this may seem like a straightforward account of the physical realities of light and darkness, but it's way much more than that. Alright? If you have studied the Genesis creation account in their ancient Near Eastern context, you know there's a lot more going on here. In the ancient world, the sea and darkness were synonymous with gods of chaos and gods of death. In the ancient imagination, darkness was understood to be a problem. So the creation of light and the separation of light and darkness in Genesis intends to communicate Yahweh's dominance over the gods of darkness, death, and chaos. At the beginning of this creation account, the earth was dark and in disarray. It was formless and void. At the end, it is light and it's ordered. And the progress is from darkness to light, from disorder to order. Light was created by God, and He separated the darkness and the light. Now, God creates light as something of, as an antidote to darkness. Light comes from God. Darkness is a problem that needs to be contained. And it's from here that a prolific concept of light and dark as good and evil is born. And I think that's how John is using it. Look at Isaiah 5.20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. So we could say that light and darkness are synonyms for good and evil. So Yahweh's light, He's holy, He's good. James put it this way. Every good gift Every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. This speaks of His goodness, His holiness, His immutability. God doesn't change. That's, a, that's an awesome doctrine of God, God's immutability. Because He's going to be the same tomorrow as He was today. Do you know anybody that's like that? you know anybody that can say that? I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. Man, we change, don't we? We can change from one moment to the next. You know, we can get up on so-called the wrong side of bed. God never does. He's immutable. He's always holy. He's always righteous. He's always good. He's always loving. Now, thinking of God as light with absolutely no darkness at all, let's try to put ourselves in the sandals of the believers in Asia Minor who were converted idolaters. All right? These are Greek people. They worship the Greek gods. John's readers were reared in heathenism. And they had been taught in their youth to worship ancient Greek Roman deities, Zeus, Hermes, Artemis of Ephesians. They worshiped these. But here's what we have to understand these gods were evil, these gods were cruel. 
Their characteristics are so bad, Paul said the things that Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons, not to God. See, they had gods, if you study the mythology, you know. They had gods who could cheat. They could lie. They had gods who were unchaste. Gods who were spiteful and malignant toward men. They had gods who were adulterers, who were quarrelsome, abusive towards other gods. The gods were always fighting with one another. They wanted to head spot. And they were accustomed to think of their gods like themselves, good and evil, kind and unkind, pure and wanton, made of darkness and light. Now these individuals hearing the apostle proclaim the disciples teaching this, they hear John teaching this, that describes a God who is all truth, who is light, who is righteous, who is good, who there's no trickery, no wantonness, no evil, not the smallest amount of malice. There's no darkness in this God. A God who can absolutely be trusted, a God who can be honored. This is new to them. And people, this is good news. God is light. That's good news to them. Wow, a God who just stays the same and is always good? And we don't have to worry about him you know, being mad at us and we get in trouble? See, the contrast between light and darkness, that's also a major theme in the Dead Sea Scrolls. The metaphor of light and darkness is used frequently in the New Testament in a variety of ways. And in every case, the context really provides the clue to how he's using it. In our text, as I said, I think John is using it as good and evil. He's using it in the sense that Paul does in Ephesians 5. Let's look at Ephesians 5 here for a second. He starts out with a simple verse, Therefore be imitators of God. Anybody got a problem with that? That's all you got to do. Just imitate God. You could take that as your life verse, and if you just focused on that and concentrated on that, you'd be good. The rest of you all, just be imitating God. When people look at you, they should say, He looks like God. He acts like God. He talks like God. As beloved children. See, you're God's children, so you should just imitate your Father. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us a fragrant offering, a sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality, now He's getting into, okay, walk as God, don't do these things. Alright? These are darkness. Sexual impurity. All impurity. Covetousness, which must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. That's interesting. He talks about all these sins. He says, instead of doing those, how about being thankful? For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no adherence in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. They said, that's how the unsaved people act and live. Don't live like that. For at one time you were darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. And then he says, walk as children of light. Because believers are light in the Lord, he tells them to walk as children of light. So Paul moves here from the indicative of what they are. You are light in the Lord to the imperative of how they should live. Just because we are children of light does not guarantee we're going to live that way. So Paul, in effect, says, be what you are. You are light, now walk that way. Well, how do we do that? I believe we do that by living righteous lives. That's what he's calling for here. 1 John 1.6, if we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Now in this verse, Lazarus sets forth the first of three conditional sentences. Alright, for those of you who are not used to me, I believe Lazarus wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John in Revelation. By Lazarus, I mean his name was John Eleazar, he was a priest. Go back to the first message in the Gospel of John, and I lay that out if you're interested in that. But that's who I believe wrote this, okay? It wasn't John the Apostle, it was John Eleazar, Lazarus, all right? So he uses conditional sentence here, which, which portrays what he understands to be the position of his opponents, all right? He says, if we say, this is the functional equivalent of saying, 
if someone says. Okay, if someone says this, then this, all right? This is the first of several third-class conditional sentences which refers to the claims of the false teacher. So he is saying, this is what the false teachers say, so I don't want you guys saying this with them. If we say we have fellowship with them, that's what they're saying, then he's saying, no, we walk in darkness. We don't have fellowship that way, all right? Now, let's go over these conditional clauses. First class condition, if, means since. If and it's so, since. Second class condition sentence means if and it's not, okay? Third class condition is what? Maybe you will, maybe you won't, okay? And we see if and we, you know, we don't have all this in our vocabulary, so to speak, but these third class conditions are the only way to identify the assertions of the false teachers who apparently were incipient Gnostics, all right? So the literary technique of a supposed objector here is called a diatribe, and that's what he's doing. He's bringing in the objector, and the objector is saying, we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness. He said, no, no, you can't do that. It was a way of presenting his argument in a question-and-answer format. We see this kind of a diatribe in Malachi. We see it in Romans. Paul used it over and over in Romans. Evidently, the false teachers in Ephesus were in one way or another complacent about their own personal lives and their sinfulness. But here's what I want you to understand. John's not writing to these people. He's writing to believers, his own followers in Ephesus, who were in danger of listening to these people who had left the churches, but they were still circulating and pressing their teaching on them. Their teaching is still influential. Some were saying, you can have fellowship with God and just live any way you want to live. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter at all. Now in Asia Minor, and in the world that John writes to, was this false teaching of Gnosticism. And particularly the Serinthian brand of Gnosticism, they held the view that Yeshua of Nazareth was simply a man. He wasn't the God-man. They believed that the Spirit of God came upon him at his baptism, hung around for a while, left before he died on the cross, so he was just a man. That's what they taught. Now, although John speaks in the first-person plural here, we, he doesn't necessarily imply that any of his readers are actually making such claims. Rather, he's using a rhetorical device to make vivid the danger of adopting this view. Now, it's kind of like he would say, now imagine if we were to say, we have fellowship with him, walking dark. No, no, we can't do that, all right? To each of these false statements, then John advances a theological counterclaim. He gives their claims, he counters it. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness. Now, some of the cessationists are claiming to have fellowship with God even though they're living in sin, doing whatever they want to do. They claim that fellowship was based on knowledge. I know something, so that's all I need to do. This was an aspect of the Greek philosopher Plato. I mean, Plato has done so much damage to the teaching of the church because we bought into so much of this Greek mentality. John asserts that Christians must live Christ-like lives. Walk here is a present active subjunctive. This is a biblical metaphor expressing a moral lifestyle. God is light. He has no darkness, so if you want to walk with Him, you walk in the light. His children should be like Him. So if we're living in sin and yet saying that we have fellowship with the Father, He says, we lie. And do not practice the truth. These are both present tense verbs. John's claim here is that the Christian who professes to have fellowship with God, who is light, he's holy, but they live in sin, they're walking in darkness, they're lying. They're guilty of two offenses. First, they're guilty of lying about the relationship with God. How many people do that today? They fool themselves. Everything's fine because I'm doing what I want to do. It's not about you. It's about what does the Bible say you're supposed to do. Second, He says they're guilty of not practicing the truth. Now, the expression practice the truth is found only here in 1 John, but it occurs in John 3.21, in that context, does what is true is the opposite of doing wicked things. Which suggests here, 1 John, practicing the truth means living in the light of the truth, seeking to avoid sin. It's living a holy life. Now, back in 2004... The governor of the state of New Jersey 
was caught in a scandal. Anybody remember that? McGreevy? Yeah. He was a married man with children. He was also having a sexual relationship with the man. At the press conference he held to admit this, he began by saying, my truth is that I am a gay American. Those are very carefully chosen words. My truth. In the thinking of the world today, I have my truth and you have your truth, right? But Yeshua said, I am the truth. And the Bible clearly tells us that truth is not what you want it to be, it's what God says it is. So you don't have your truth, your own particular little truth. It's God's truth. To practice the truth is to follow Christ's teaching. Now some commentators take the phrases, have fellowship with Him and walk in the light, as describing salvation. So they're saying, you know, John's telling people how to be saved. And we'll show that this is impossible here in a few seconds. Advocates of this view say that if a Christian does not persevere in holy living, then he's not a Christian. One commentator writes this, And for John, to walk in darkness is not describing a carnal Christian. It is describing an unbeliever. Walking in the light is not a description of a class of spiritual believers who have achieved perfection or some high state of sanctification. Rather, it describes all true believers. Really. Well, again, who's John writing to? He's writing to believers. And if John says, if third class condition we walk in the light, then he's saying, maybe we will, and maybe we won't. John Piper writes this, The message of 1 John, that walking in the light is not optional, but necessary for salvation. Okay. you got to walk in the light if you want to be saved. It's the only way you're going to be saved. So how, okay, then we start getting nitpicky and, you know, defining this. Uh, There's not a lot of people left. The issue here is fellowship. It's not salvation. The Christian who temporarily walks in darkness, they're still saved. They're out of fellowship with God. John earlier said his aim was that his readers, who were Christians, he makes that clear, should enjoy fellowship with the Father and with them. So verse 6 reflects a claim of the opponents. Alright, this is what the opponents are saying. Now in verse 7, we have the counterclaim of John. John says, but if we walk in the light, As He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Yeshua His Son cleanses us from all sin. So John's counterpoint is also a form of a conditional sentence. If we say, walk here is another present tense which emphasizes continuous action. Walk is a New Testament metaphor for the Christian life. Look at Ephesians 4, 1 and 2. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner Worthy of your calling. So he's saying, live this way, to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another. People, truth is something we're called to live out, not just something to know. Walking in the light doesn't mean that those who walk in the light never sin. That's not what it's about. It's about the fact that when they do sin, they don't try to hide it. They don't try to make excuses for it. They go to God in confession, and we'll get to that when we get to verse 9. By walking in the light, he means living up to what God shows us in His Word. That's what walking in the light is. These verses are not evangelistic. John is challenging Christian people to be in fellowship with God. He's not questioning anybody's salvation. He's calling them to a fellowship. He says, if we walk in the light as He is in the light. Now, 1.5 John said, God is light. Here he says God is in the light, which indicates that he's going to use the metaphor in an ethical fashion. Believers are to think and live like God. We talked about that already, Ephesians 5.1. Be imitators of God. We've talked about this before, people. We're called to be image bearers. We bear the image of the living God. And that means we reflect Him in the things we say and do. And again, it's just... When people look at us, they should see Christ. That means we respond the way Christ would, we talk the way He would, we live the way He would, we live Christ-like lives. That's what an image bearer does. 
I think we're giving people the wrong idea about God. Because one of the biggest hinders to Christianity is Christians. The consequence of walking in the light are twofold. He says, we have fellowship one with another. So the first consequence is a fellowship. Now let me ask you something here. Who's the one another? Who's the one another here? Is it we have fellowship with God and God and us, that's one another, or with other Christians? Yes. All right, God is in the light. So when we walk in the light, we have fellowship with Him. Two Christians who are walking in fellowship with God, guess what? They have fellowship with each other because they're all walking in the light together. As people walking in the light, they have fellowship one with another. So if you're in fellowship with God, you'll be in fellowship with other believers who are in fellowship with God. Now remember, fellowship is koinonia, joint participation between two persons, sharing things together. The only grounds on which we can have fellowship with another man or woman as brothers and sisters in Christ is on the foundation of truth, the foundation of the gospel. If they deny the fundamentals of the gospel, they can't be considered a Christian And they're not proclaiming or declaring the gospel according to Christ. And we can't have fellowship with them. And that's why I've said over and over, to proclaim that people have to be baptized in water specifically for the remission of sins to be saved is a false gospel. It's a ritualistic gospel. You can't be saved by water, people. The Holy Spirit is the saving agent. And Ephesians chapter 4 says, there is one baptism. Now, you read the Bible, you read about water baptism, you read about spirit baptism. He says there's one. Which one do you think he's talking about? Okay, not, he's not saying water, okay? There's one baptism, and that's the baptism of the Spirit that places you in the body of Christ. All right, the second consequence of walking in the light is the blood of Yeshua, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. This is a present active indicative. And by His use of the present tense for the verbs walk and cleanse, the author represents both the walking and the cleansing as ongoing activities. The term sin here is singular with no article, and this implies any kind, every kind of sin. Notice this verse is not focusing on one-time cleansing. It's not talking about salvation here. This is an ongoing cleansing of the Christian. Both of these, a one-time act of cleansing at salvation and an ongoing cleansing both are part of the Christian experience. God cleanses us at conversion in the sense that He will bring no condemnation upon us because we have been made the righteousness of Christ. Romans 8.1, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. However, we need continual cleansing from the defilement of the sinful world that we walk in because the sin we come upon day by day hinders our fellowship with God. I think what he is saying here is exactly what he's already taught in John 13. You remember back in John 13 when the Lord washed the disciples' feet? You know, that was a slave's job, okay? So they would never, you know, occur to them that the Lord would... But he's teaching them, listen, you need to be humble, you need to be servants of everybody. But so he comes to Peter and Peter says, you shall never wash my feet. Peter's so spiritual. Not me, Lord. Yeshua answered him. If I do not wash you, you have no meros, no share with me, no part. You don't share in what I'm doing, Peter, if I don't wash you. So Simon Peter, being the kind of person he is, says, Well then, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. Give me a whole bath then, Lord, if that's what it's all about. So Yeshua said to him, The one who has been bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but he's completely clean. Listen, he says, The one who has been bathed, the one who has been cleansed, luo, washed from their sins, does not need another bath, but you do need your feet washed on a regular basis. You don't need to be saved again, Peter, but you need to be cleansed. All right? I think he's distinguishing two types of spiritual cleansing here from believers, a forensic forgiveness and a family forgiveness. See, when a person believes in Yeshua as Savior, God removes the guilt from that person. For sins committed in the past, present, future, every sin is forgiven. Completely. Yeshua spoke of this forensic or legal forgiveness as a total bath, luo. But after a person believes in Christ, he or she commits sins. Some people deny this. 
We're going to talk about that next week. All right. They commit sins, and those sins hinder the believer's fellowship with God. Because if you walk in darkness, you're hindering your fellowship. So in our text, John is not referring to initial salvation. He is talking about the removal of the obstacles to fellowship, which is consciousness of sin. It is the cleansing of the conscience. One can be a Christian, but not at any particular point in time, be experiencing this fellowship with God. See, if we Christians do not walk in the light, we're not going to have fellowship with a God who's walking in the light. And we're not going to have fellowship with one another. Now, you'll have fellowship with other people who are not walking in the light because you're all in darkness together. You've got things to fellowship about. You have fellowship about your sinfulness. He says the blood of Yeshua. Blood here is metonymy. All right? It's metonymy for the death of Christ. He's referring to a violent death on the cross, and this death provides purification for sins for those who walk in the light with God. Now, because the early Gnostics denied Yeshua's humanity, I think John uses blood here to reinforce true humanity. He was a true human, but it was God's blood, according to Acts. Now, since this cleansing from sin is something that follows when we walk in the light, as He Himself is in the light, it must refer in this context primary to ongoing practical sanctification. Now, I don't think you hear that word too much anymore, sanctification. So let's talk about that just for a minute. Let me share with you the traditional understanding of this view and how I differ from that. It's taught that sanctification is an activity of God that liberates the Christian from the power of sin. I agree with that. It imparts righteousness, the righteousness of God to man. Now traditionally, most people today would say sanctification falls into three aspects. Positional sanctification... This is a state of holiness imputed to the Christian at the moment of their conversion. All right? This is positional. If you're in Christ, you're holy. Look at uh, 2 Thessalonians 2.13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Now, sanctification here is the Greek word hagiosmos, from which we get holy. It means to be set apart, to be holy. So God set us apart at salvation. Then we have progressive sanctification. Now here's where I'm going to differ with the traditional view. This refers to the process in our daily lives by which we're being conformed to the image of Christ. In this process of becoming what we are in Christ, this involves putting off the old habits, putting on the new a text that is often used to support this view would be 2 Corinthians 3.18. That's such a misused text. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Traditionally, this refers to the process in our daily lives which we are being conformed to the image of Christ. It is a process of becoming what we are in Christ. And people will say, you know, the more you read, the more you study, the more you grow, you're, you're being transformed from glory to glory to glory. But there are only two glories here. It's the glory of the Old Covenant and the glory of the New Covenant. All right? That's all that's in this text. Okay? It's talking about progressive sanctification, but this does not refer to us. It's talking about transition saints. In between Pentecost and Holocaust, those saints were being made into the image of God. In between the first and second advent of Christ. They are being transformed from old covenant glory to new covenant glory. They were growing into a living temple. Ephesians 2 says you're growing. You're, a build, you're being built up for a habitation of God in the Spirit. Buildings don't grow, but this is a living building. During the transition, the church was growing into maturity. They were being built for a dwelling place. During the transition period, the church is growing into the image of Christ. This is speaking about position, not practice. This growth was completed in AD 70 when the Lord returned. He moved into the building. Okay, It became His house. So progressive sanctification is something that happened to first century saints, not us. 
They were growing into Christ-likeness. We are in Christ-likeness. Now let me say this. I I believe that we are to be growing in practical holiness. And what I mean by that is the more time you walk with the Lord, the more time you walk in fellowship, you ought to be more and more looking like He looks to the people around you. As you walk with the Lord, you're going to reflect His values, His attributes. We're not growing into Christ's image positionally because we're already there. That is who we are. We're complete in Christ. And then the traditional view would have ultimate sanctification. Traditionally, this is said to be the state of holiness that we attain when we leave this life, when the Lord returns and we're finally in the presence of God. And they would use verses like 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we'll be like Him. Because we'll see Him as He is. See, this was written to the first century believers who were waiting for the soon return of the Lord. And so He did. He appeared in 8070, just like He said He would. All right. so what about us? Believers living beyond 8070. What does sanctification mean to us? Well, first of all, I think sanctification is synonymous with being in Christ. It is our position. We are holy. We are set apart. It's a position. And I believe that there should be a practical or experimental aspect of this sanctification to us. I believe that Yahweh has called us to live holy lives. And that's what John's talking about here when he says we're to walk in the light. When people look at us, they say, man, you can be very convicting to other people. If you're living the way you ought to be living. I remember the first time as a young Christian, we experienced this. We, Kathy and I, her sister pulled us aside and just began to rake us over the coals. You hypocrites, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, and Kathy and I are looking at each other like, we have no idea what they're talking about. And then we realize we don't do the things they do anymore. And so just our lives you know, confronted them without saying anything. We weren't preaching to them. We weren't, but just the difference that had taken place in our lives was condemning them. And we didn't get it then. We get it now. But it's like, did you say something? I'm like, I didn't say anything. You know, but they were all mad. Your life should be different. W. Hall Harris III writes this on 1 John 1.7. He says, if we understand these statements to refer to initial justification, the force of the conditional construction in the apotesis, if we walk in the light, would make one's justification contingent upon one's deeds or behavior, and this comes perilously close to making one's salvation depend, at least in part, upon good works. It would make one's justification contingent upon your deeds or behavior. Do you understand what he's saying here? Look at verse 7. If we walk in the light, then what happens? We have fellowship. If here, again, is a third class condition, maybe we will as Christians, and maybe we won't because it's not guaranteed you're a Christian, you're going to walk in the light. A lot of Christians are stumbling around in the darkness. They don't have to be. They choose to be. Now, if fellowship here is a reference to salvation, then guess how we get salvation? Works. By living a holy life. Anybody have a problem with that? You ought to. Because salvation is going to be really elusive if it comes by your works. But see, that's what he's saying. If we walk in the light, then we're going to have fellowship. So how does fellowship become salvation? We don't get salvation by our works. He's not talking about justification here. He's talking about practically walking in holiness so we can have fellowship with God. (coughs) When John talks about justification, John uses the phrase, come to the light. We see this in John 3, 20, 21. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and they don't come to the light. Lest their work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light. This is what may be clearly seen that works have been carried out in God. So so he uses walk in the light to refer to what one does after he has come to the light. That is, to the process of practical sanctification. See, the author's not worried about the initial justification or salvation of his readers. 
Rather, he is reassuring them of the forgiveness of sins committed after having become Christians. Listen, there's forgiveness for that believer. You think just because you know, you're a Christian, you're not going to sin anymore. No, that's not going to happen. The blood cleanses us as we walk in the light. Since walking in the light is being purified from every sin, then walking in darkness here is walking in sin. Believers, we are all, every one of us, called by God to walk in the light. We are called to live righteous, holy lives following the example of the teaching of Christ. That's our calling. And when we do this, we live in fellowship with Yahweh, the God of all creation. What could be more important? What could be more of a blessing? What could produce a greater life than walking in fellowship with God? See, Paul understood this. And that's why you look at the life of Paul and he's beaten for preaching the Gospel and he's stuck in a dungeon and he says, Hey, Silas, let's sing. You know Amazing Grace? Let's sing it. Their backs are torn open. They're in the stocks. Those stocks would, not like the colonials, they would stretch you as far as possible and lock you down so you're miserable. And he's singing. You say, what's wrong with him? He's walking in fellowship, people. And you know what? I really think the problem today is Christians live at such a low state of holiness and righteousness practically that makes everybody else feel okay. And you get a Christian come along who's really on fire for the Lord and people think, what's wrong with them? Christians think, what's wrong with them? People, we've, been, we've bought a lie to think that we can somehow partake of the sins of the world and it'll make our life better. We'll enjoy it. It'll be good. It's a lie. If you want to enjoy life to the fullest, it's walking in fellowship with the God who created you. Psalm 1611 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. When you're walking in fellowship with God, first of all, nothing's going to hurt you, nothing's going to harm you. Anything that comes in your life, it's like, okay, that's okay, I can deal with that. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. People, don't let anything rob you of the joy, of the blessing that comes from walking in fellowship with the living God. Let's pray. Father, I thank You, Lord, for Your Word today. Oh, Lord, I pray we take it to heart, Father. So often we're deceived. Lord, we think we can walk in darkness and things would be fine. They'll turn out okay for us. It's hard to walk in the darkness, Lord. You stumble, you trip, you don't know the obstacles. It's a dangerous place to be. Lord, I pray you'd teach us the joys, the blessing of walking in fellowship with the living God. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Amen. All right, questions, comments? What'd you say, Dave? <laughs> Good. I'm just trying to share, share the misery. Yes. Good morning. I thank God for being here first time and I'm from Rose. And uh, I thank God for the service this morning this far. Um, I had a question on the comment uh, about water baptism not saving. Mm-hmm. Um, where I come from, I, I have been baptized in water. But through over the years studying, I began to question does that actually save one? You know, and they would begin to quote the scriptures like in, in Matthew when Jesus was being baptized um, by John. And he says, suffer it to be so now, or fulfill it all righteousness. Or they go to scriptures where, um, in, the, in Acts, where servants were baptized, it says, uh, repent and be baptized to wash away thy sins. Acts 2.38, yeah. So, uh, could you kind of expound on that point? Yeah, sure. Um, first of all, the one in Matthew, to fulfill all righteousness. Christ was a priest. As a priest, he had to be water baptized. Okay, That had nothing to do with salvation. That's pre- that was something the priest did. It is my opinion... John the Baptist came on baptizing in water, okay? I don't think baptism plays any part today in the Christian life, okay? I think the the emphasis, again, on Ephesians is that there is one baptism, and that is spirit baptism. And see, the water is simply a picture all through the Tanakh, the Old Testament. Water was a picture of cleansing, 
God's cleansing by His Spirit. You know, and that's in John chapter 3. He told Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you're going to be born of the water and the Spirit. The water was a cleansing agent. It's not waters of baptism. See, to think that you can take somebody and put them in water and that saves them, that's Old Testament. That's ritual salvation. That's what they did. We're not, we, we moved into the New Testament now. We don't have those rituals anymore. It's the Spirit of God that gives life. And in Acts 2.38, I am not convinced that Peter's even talking about water in that chapter. All right? He says, he's talking to Israel, first of all. All Jews, repent. They needed to repent because they were God's people and they turned away. Turn back to God, he's telling them. You're God's people. Turn back to God. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the remission of sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. I think he's telling them, listen, it's the spirit baptism you're going to receive. And here's why I think that. Do you know how long it would take to baptize 3,000 people? I mean, seriously. And listen, they're under Roman domination. If you do some studies on this, you'll find out water was very limited. Okay, in Jerusalem. They didn't have just, you know, all water everywhere to baptize. 3,000 people. It would take days if all 12 of the apostles got involved. Did it, you know, that's, I don't think that's even what they're talking about. But see, we're so caught on the physical that we hang on to it. It's faith in Christ that saves us. And when we trust in the Lord, the Holy Spirit cleanses us, places us in the body of Christ. I don't think it was ever, ever about water. It's always about spirit. So that's, you know, a quick answer there for you. We can, I can give you some, point you to some more in-depth stuff, but thanks for, thanks for asking a question and being here for the first time. I appreciate you doing that. Yes. <laughs> well, that's a good question, honey. If you, by God, if you mean Jesus, who, huh? The question was, did God have a mommy and daddy? Okay. By God, if you mean Jesus, or who I call Yeshua, yes, he had a mom. Okay. God, his, God was his father, and Mary was his mother. So in that sense, he had a God, a heavenly father, but he had a mother. Mary was his mother. And that's a, a little maybe beyond your pay grade, but. <laughs> yes, John. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Look at those things that we've just talked about. Are there degrees? Are there. Um, does light get a little bit like you turn up a. Uh, like a dimmer switch? Yeah. Like you, is it a little bit more light? A little bit more light? No, not so much light. How do you know when you're walking in the light? Okay, if, good. If you're in darkness, just a little bit of light seems really bright. Right, you're right. Okay, yes. John's question is are we talking about degrees here? Yes. I don't think this is absolute. All right, it's pitch black. I'm in the light. Cool. No. I think, yeah, like you said, there's shades. And it's a growing process, people. And listen, this is why, this is the main reason I preach and harp on the fact you need to be reading your Bibles. I think you should read through your Bibles once a year as a Christian, minimum. All right? If you're a Christian, you're saying you're a God follower, you need to understand who God is and what He wants, and you're only going to find that in the Bible. So read your Bibles. And if you're reading your Bibles... Over and over, guess what? You're going to see stuff every year you never saw the year before. I mean, I don't know. I've read that Bible over 30 times myself, and every time I read it, I'm like, how'd that get in there? How will I miss that? You know? And I'm like slapped in the face with something. But it also reminds me of things I forget. Because I forget things, and I'm reading it over, I'm like, oh, God wants us to forgive like He's forgiven us. (laughs) That's not a comfortable thing. But that's what, you know, that's why we read, because we learn that. Because, I mean, it's easy to, you know, forget about that and just go out and fight for your rights. <laughs> Again, everything that's natural to us people is wrong. <laughs> really is. I mean, we, we've got to fight the natural, you know. We've got to live supernatural. And that's what the calling is. Donna? Absolutely. That you know, that was a little other than maybe the Pharisees, he wasn't angry. The people who sinned, he wasn't angry. You know, and so I think that's actually I tried to not too much get into the flesh and think of really what would Jesus Well that's a good question. What would he do? Because I think if we asked ourselves that, 
you know, uh, of course, then we, everybody to us would be a Pharisee, and we'd be <laughs> tipping over tables in the temple and screaming and throwing people out and stuff. But, but yes, we need to ask, how did, because he was an example for us. And that's when he says, imitate God. Have you any, see, any of you ever seen God? Yes, in Christ. He said, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So, you know what the Father looks like. So, we imitate Christ. He imitated the Father. So, we, yeah, we act like He act. And we see what He did. And we see how He treated people. And yeah, He cared about people. I mean, the Bible talks about His compassion many times. His heart breaks. He weeps. He cared. David. Tag on the Don's thing over Jesus. He always like to ask if ever turning tables and chasing people has been an option. <laughs> well, if you're in the right church, it is. <laughs> Gary? I, like David said earlier, I'm not start wearing steel toe shoes. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me tell you, this book is going to be rough, okay? If you're comfortable living in sin, you might want to skip this book, okay? Because this is what he hammers on. Because remember, the book's about fellowship. If you want fellowship with the Father, and you walk in the light. And walking in the light is living a holy, righteous life. We're not going to be perfect at that. And that's why in the next couple verses, he says, when you sin, if we confess our sins, hamalagao, if we say the same thing about our sins that God says, it's wrong, this is not right. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we just keep going and we keep walking in the light, being cleansed as we go. But it's when we get in sin and we say, ah, that's not sin. Ah, that's okay if I do that. You know, it's a different world today and, you know, society's changed and it, this is okay for me to do. No, God's word has not changed. You know, not changed a bit. I don't care what age it is. I don't care what day it is. I don't care how screwed up our society is that they, don't, they can't tell a man from a woman anymore. The Bible is very clear. And it's not changing. All right? You can. And that'll be walking in darkness. See, that's what people in darkness do. They, they make excuses for their sin. In the light, you say, that's not right. I confess it. I hate it. I confess it. You know, that's, that's what it's about. You know, it's not about failure because people guarantee you're going to fail constantly. And part of the failure is to realize, I can't do this on my own. I really need God. You know, I got to walk in. The Christian life is supernatural. Okay? It's not a natural thing. It's supernatural. You can't do it unless you're dependent upon God. And as you walk in the Spirit, and, and you young people, I wish I could instill in you how important it is to follow the path. You get off the path, there's dangers. It looks good, but there's dangers. Okay, and I can show you danger after danger of people who've gotten off the path and fallen. And that's what walk in the light to the Hebrews. It was let's stay on the commands or to keep us on the path. Not to restrict us from what we can do, but you want to be on the path where the safety is and get you to your designation. You can't get that when you get off the path. Stan? Uh, back to baptism again. Uh, you know, most churches, basically it's a sign. So why even do it? Is that just for the other believers? Well, okay, his question is, for most people, baptism is a sign. Yes, people who are non-Church of Christ, okay, would say, you know, they baptize. They don't baptize for their mission sins. They baptize as a sign, which I don't even think is valid today anymore, okay? I don't think the sign has the meaning it had in the first century. I think during the transition period, that sign was meaningful. All right, it was a separation. It was a death to those people. We're leaving that old life. To, to now, now it's, I just don't think, I don't think it's valid today. I, I'm not saying you're sinning if you get baptized. Not at all. If you want to get wet, go ahead. You know, I don't think it, I don't think it'll hurt you. I don't think it'll help you. But, uh, well, and this is in no, in no way of judging anybody who does that. But if through my experience, in my background, from uh, the background I come from, I've noticed a lot of people who end up getting baptized and doing that because they're, they're taught that you don't see no change in, in, in the inward man. Actually. So. You have Church of Christ background? Okay, yeah. All right, same thing. Yep, gotcha. All right, yeah. You're right. They get wet, and that's all they get. They come out just as sinful and acting as sinful as they were before they got wet. And people are like, it didn't take. 
I tell you what, if you really want them to change, hold them under for about 10 minutes. Total transfer. They will never sin again. Okay? They will be sinless. That's the only way to make, come out of the water and be sinless is to keep them down longer. That's where we're failing. We're bringing them up way too quick. <laughs> Anybody else before we wrap this up? Gary. <laughs> oh, my. I think, you know, the thing that I harp, the reason I harp on that is because the sad thing is people end up trusting their work, trusting their water baptism instead of trusting Christ. Christ, you know, we, you sing to Him. Yeshua, Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. You know, it's not Jesus and baptism, you know, paid it all. No, Jesus paid it all. It's His work that puts us in God, that ensures our eternal life. It's nothing we do. We don't need to add anything to it. Now, after we are saved, we are called to live a righteous, holy life, and we should do that out of gratitude for all that God has done for us. Long-winded. Long-winded preacher. Yes. I think no matter what we go through in life, you know, good and bad, particularly bad, we focusing on is that once we see the light, you know, of course we can take the credit, but once you know God is in you and you feel the Spirit, you know what you did was wrong or you admit to something, I think. Concentrating on that, you know, really brings, you know, sometimes bring joy and brings tears to your eyes, and you want to just be thankful, like you say, be grateful for the the consciousness of that alone, you know, and it, and it, it makes a difference, you know. You know, I've done wrong a lot, and I, you know, and I, and I was taught a lot, you know, and, and I have people in my life to point me to certain things that that change me, which I'm grateful and gratitude that. But it feels good in a way, but also make it come to tears on what you were doing, what you said, or what you didn't recognize. You know. That's what walking in the light's about. It grieves you when you do, don't do right. Now, walking in the light, one of the most important things is the Word of God. But the second most important thing is what? Class, you've got to get this one right. The Word of God, other believers. People were not made to live in isolation. We need each other. Now, if you hang around a bunch of people walking in darkness, guess what you'll do? You'll walk in darkness. But if you hang around people who are walking in light, then the believers encourage one another, support one another, they help one another. Not, again, like we talked about earlier, be a bunch of fruit inspectors and judge you and criticize you. No, encourage you to walk in the light. We need one another. Look up all the one another verses in the New Testament. Man, it's amazing because God made us as a body to be dependent on one another. And so that's why it's so important that we be in fellowship with other like-minded believers that will encourage us, support us, so we can move on together. All right, I'm going to go ahead. That's why the people who are watching online are so amazing because most of them don't have that fellowship. That's true. Those of you watching online, you know, if I, I would... You know, I just encourage people, if you can find fellowship anywhere, you know, it's just good to be part, you know, get somebody else to come to your house, you know, and share together, you know, because we just, we need that body life. When you get in isolation, you can start thinking things that aren't right at all, you know, and you need other people to correct you and pull you back. 